Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive, when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Your Bible has the words written in red is what I should say. Thank you. All right. We'll get there. Our sermon this morning, which will hopefully start soon, um, picks up where last week left off. And that's a really cool thing. And I say that because what this does is it allows for Reverend Heaton and I to share material that overlaps. And when that happens you may hear a few common themes come together, or you might be lucky enough to hear a completely contrasting hermeneutical analysis of Scripture. And since Reverend Heaton was on vacation all this week, he didn't know what was going to happen until 8.30 this morning. So this is Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. I'm still in Matthew. I, I had a cup earlier. You'd think it would have kicked in by now. I'm going to lick this. These pages are so thin. Here we are. Beautiful. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose their reward. And if anyone of you causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have 20-20 vision and two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. The word of God for the people of God. Mercy. You're thanking God for that kind of scripture about cutting off hands and feet? Well, we're in the ninth chapter of Mark, and we heard last week that in the midst of all this, Jesus and his disciples were passing through Galilee and Capernaum. He had just been transfigured before them up on the mountaintop at the very beginning of chapter 9. 
came down to cast out a demon. And now things were starting to get really real. Jesus is starting to share some pretty heavy details about God's ultimate plan. And he wants to keep things on the down low for now. So they're probably on their way to stay with trusted friends and family. Remember, most of the disciples were former fishermen who grew up around the Sea of Galilee, so they know the neighborhood pretty well. And so as they're walking around and they're talking secretively about who's going to be crucified and who's going to rise again, the disciples start fighting and arguing like the multiple sets of brothers that they were. And they're fighting and they're arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Yes, toxic masculinity existed in biblical times as well. Perhaps since they're passing by their families, they're checking in with everybody, they're probably going to come in home and say, I'm back. I haven't been wasting my last two years of my life following this hobo around the desert. I saw him transfigured on a mountain. He's casting people out, so I'm going to be able to do that too. I got that going for me. I'll graduate in a couple weeks. Maybe pick up a minor in food redistribution. Look for a job in healthcare. In all seriousness, though, there are fascinating social dynamics at work here. So they've made their way to somebody's house, and Jesus, having just heard all this nonsense and fighting on their walk over, calls everyone together for a literal come-to-Jesus meeting and begins to teach them and correct them. And in the middle of this teaching moment, Jesus simply reaches out and picks up this random kid who's walking around. The kid... I mean, we assume the kid lives there. They're staying in somebody's house. The kid probably lives there as well. But Jesus picks up this kid to use as a teaching illustration, and that's pretty much where we are this morning. Jesus is doing the little kid bounce that you do when you hold children, and he's walking around, and he's giving a lesson to his disciples. He's probably trying to garner some type of emotional response or connection to his message. He's trying to convey some idea to his ex disciples using this child as a visual illustration. So when we pick up at verse 8, let me put that kid down for a minute. John decides to speak up. This is John. This is the beloved disciple. This is John, the brother of James, the pair of them whom Nick, Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder because Jesus having an, I don't know, almost godlike ability to know things about people thusly named this pair of brothers. He knew, inherently knew something about them and named them the Sons of Thunder. And so important and vital was this nicknaming that it is held up in Scripture for almost 2,000 years. So John, a son of thunder, probably all kinds of worked up, either physically or emotionally. He was the younger brother, after all, and even often referred to as the youngest disciple. So he's probably just been little brothered in an argument amongst all of the older disciples and then corrected by Jesus. So John, perhaps all too eager to prove himself, pushes to the front of the group and says, Jesus, we saw people casting out demons in your name, but we told him to stop because he's not with our group. And you just see him standing all proud, looking for his gold star. Jesus not having it. Jesus is there holding the small, random child 
maybe it's Andrew or Simon's niece or something, trying to give a poignant lesson on serving others, getting along with people, taking care of each other, especially the innocent and the vulnerable. And up to the front of the class comes Tattletale John, who has clearly not been reading the room or paying attention to anything that Jesus has been saying. And so from there, we have multiple ways to proceed with the text that God has given us. And remember, no one has all the answers. This is just how I might read through these next few verses. And they're written in red, so I can really focus on them. So, John's just come up. Jesus readjusts. Toddler on the other hip. His back's given out. And taking a deep breath, again, we've talked about that because Jesus needs the Spirit to work right now. I can feel it. Taking a deep breath, Jesus replies, John, don't, don't stop him. Don't stop him, John. No one who is helping us in my name is really against us. It's probably a friend. I probably know the guy. Don't do that. In fact, anybody who gives you a water because you're hanging out with me is, is on our team. We're trying to work together here, John. And if anyone causes you, you know, it's just so simple. Get along. If anyone of you even causes one of these little ones, I'm talking about you, causes these little ones to sin, you should cut off your hands, mm-hmm, cut, them right cut off your feet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because it's better to go through life maimed than to go to hell where the eternal fire and the worms never die. Mm-hmm, you'll go straight to hell. Mm-hmm, I'm telling That's one way to read it. A second way that you might read that is one where, again, that full tattletale scene goes down. Jesus readjusts the toddler, takes a deep breath, and then covers up the kid's ears. And looks at everybody, if any of you puts a stumbling block in front of these little ones, it would be better for you if a great millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the bottom of a lake. You may as well cut off your hands and your feet and your eyes before you do any of that nonsense, because if I see any more of this, I'm going to throw you all straight into hell. Second way. There's probably also a third way for this to be read, where Jesus puts the child down, and the child goes about his business to run off and play. Perhaps that particular child, much like my children, has the capacity to completely tune out adult voices and simply goes about their life completely oblivious to the world around them. But again, this is just me. You can open up your own Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and you can read all of this with whatever tone or inflection you think best suits our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. But as an elementary school teacher for nine years, I know tattling when I see it. I know what it's like to be in the middle of a lesson and to be interrupted by a student who hasn't been paying attention. And I know what it's like to feel passionately about the mistreatment of children and other vulnerable people. And I know the frustration that comes with having to repeat myself for the one millionth time and needing to remind my children, my own two sons of thunder, who have been cooped up from all this rain, that there are consequences for their actions at any age. And as I read this text this morning through my subjective lens based off of my life experiences, I also see very clearly the human Jesus who is beginning to grow tired and weary. Yes, maybe even a little sarcastic. Just a few verses before, in verse 19, he was saying to everyone, just come off the mountain, they're all milling about with this boy, and Jesus says, you faithless generation. 
How much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Just bring me the boy. I'll heal him. This is also the Jesus who has been recently transfigured on a mountaintop. I imagine that's very physically draining. Most of us will have to die to experience that, don't you know? It's also worth noting that we're at the end of chapter Mark. They've been planning to kill Jesus since chapter 3. Palm Sunday, the Passion of the Christ, kicks off with chapter 11. And chapter 10 is just filled with Pharisees, miraculous healing, and the ongoing and constant instruction and correction of the 12 disciples. James and John, or sons of thunder, even continue this bickering and arguing, coming up to Jesus and begging him, Oh Lord, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And chapter 10, verse 41 says, when the other 10 disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So what does Jesus do? He's got to call everyone together for a second come to Jesus meeting. And again, has to give them, if you read it, if you read it, give them the exact same lesson that John so rudely interrupted with his tattletaling. Jesus has to sit there and repeatedly tell these 12 angry men that their ideas and concepts of power and authority and greatness are all completely wrong. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said the words, hermeneutical analysis. Some of you may know all about that. But I'm willing to bet that there's a fair number of people who let those words slip by and had no intention of looking them up later. But hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, specifically the Bible and some other literary texts. It's basically what we call it when we try to properly interpret, understand, and apply the Bible. I'm going to borrow it again. <laughs> It's where we, as readers of Scripture, as disciples of Jesus, who have been given a brain for reasoning, who have been given a heart for feeling and experiencing, it's where we've been given a community of believers for accountability and confirmation. It's where we look at Scripture in sometimes literal, historical, grammatical, and contextual ways. And this is important work because, as Reverend Heaton said last week, Jesus says some very difficult and confusing things. Even those that walked with Jesus, that worked alongside Jesus, didn't get it, even after repeated instruction and correction. And so this morning, there are literally countless congregations around the globe all coming together in their attempt to deconstruct, define, and understand this great and holy mystery that is the Word of God. And here's the thing about the Word of God. The Word of God is not only a holy and a life-giving gift from God, but it is also a fascinating and exhaustive piece of literature. The Bible is a big, beautiful book of poetry, music, history, songs, stories, genealogies, and letters 
personal correspondence is scripture. I'm going to come to your house and open up your mail. The phrase, hey, don't forget my coat when you come is included in our holy texts. If you were here on Wednesday night Vesper service, you heard that they shall eat meat until it comes out of their nostrils is also included in the Bible. It's fascinating. And I'm telling you all of this because in some way, I want you to leave this morning with more questions than answers. From the information in the bulletin, the call to worship, the congregational prayer, you can read all of that from the artwork that you see, from the sermon title, from the song that we learned, you can probably discern the direction where my thoughts on this passage were taking me. But as the Holy Spirit has reminded me this week, we live in a world that requires constant interpretation and discernment. And that's not something that one person can always do for another. And it's probably not something that should be done in isolation or in solitude either. So that being said, I'm going to conclude the sermon this morning with a few guiding questions with the provision that you are encouraged and empowered to think of and ask your own questions as well as we open our minds and our hearts to the Word of God through the words of human beings who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is my hope and prayer that our mutual faith is nourished, that our understanding is deepened, and that the possibilities for transforming the world become apparent to us. So as you go about your week, you might ponder, why would John have stopped one person from helping another? Why are Jesus' words so severe? Physical mutilation. What is it about Christ's focus on power, vulnerability, and service to one another that is so hard for people to grasp? Who are you in this story? Who do you relate to? And lastly, what would God have us do with all of this information? Let it be so. Amen.